Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Please be seated. you'll keep your Bible open to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, we will make our way <clears throat> that way here momentarily. Uh, we are glad to see you and glad that uh, we are beginning to have more and more and more people with us. Um, I'm excited to see you. It was a um, hard pill to swallow when it was just a few of us and we couldn't check on everybody every week. And so uh, it is a fantastic uh, day for us to see uh, a good majority of us uh, here today. When we think of words uh, that are found within the Bible, we generally uh, think about them in, in this particular setting. Uh, words like repentance and confession. Uh, we think of the cross and uh, that Old Testament laws and those Old Testament sacrifices. And we think about them here because this is the place we talk about them the most. Probably one of those words or one of those phrases that we think about the most and we think about here all the time is the phrase, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, how many of you this past week have talked to your friends about the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, uh, we generally keep it here because these are what I like to call church words that, that we just use here and sometimes, sometimes really even during the week we don't think about them. Today I'd like for us to think about what is inside that box. And in order to do that, you and I have to understand what that box really is. The box was about 52 inches long, about 31 inches high, about 31 inches wide, somewhere around there. And in my mind, I think of a Lane Cedar chest. Anybody else? But that particular chest that was made to God's specifications was laid over with gold or, or encrusted with gold. And at the bottom there it had rings on each of the four corners. And from those rings would a piece of wood known as a staff made out of shatim wood, the same wood that the box was made out of, in, in those rings, the staff would go, and God required the nation of Israel to carry that box on the shoulders of the sons of a man by the name of Merari. And so they would carry this box here and there, and it was not just covered with gold. You see, along the top edge, uh, there was what was called the crown. And I think the crown had two purposes. I think the first uh, and foremost purpose really of it was that it was very attractive and it would be one that would be eye-catching. Uh, but secondly, I think it was to, to keep the lid from slipping off. And so it was just a, a little bit of a raised area so that the lid wouldn't shake back and forth. And on top of this lid would be pretty well be flat with the exception of, of two 
angel statues, and they would be called the cherub. Each of them would be together. They'd be cherubim, and they would be facing each other. And, and on top of this uh, lid with these angels facing each other, there'd be two angels' wings that would be outstretched one toward another. Now, that's not the end of this box, because right there in the middle, right there in the middle is a very special place. In between those cherub with their outstretched wings, that flat spot there was known as the mercy seat in Hebrew. If you look over in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, as the, the language changes from the Hebrew to the Greek, uh, that word is translated, at least in some of our Bibles, as propitiation or maybe sin sacrifice. Speaking about Jesus himself. Jesus became the place of sacrifice for us. See, that single flat space was only approached one time a year by one person in the entire nation. Only the, the high priest would go there and he would make the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the entire nation. An interesting side note. Uh, later on in history, we find out that uh, the, the high priest would go in there and have a, a rope tied to his ankle. And that was in case he had not purified himself before he went in there, he would die making that sacrifice and they'd have to have some way to retrieve him. They couldn't go in there. And so they would eventually tie a rope to his ankle. This is the place that is... Uh, seen as Jesus. This is, the, this is the, the sacrifice for all of, of the Old Testament. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, and 6, there's some history that is being relied upon by a couple of guys by the name of Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas are the sons of a guy by the name of Eli, who is the high priest at this time. The history they're relying on is that every time this golden box comes out to the battlefield, Israel wins. There's no ifs or ands or buts about it. Israel wins because the box is there, or, or so they think. A lot of times they, they think about this box as God, and they parade it around as the Philistines would they're gods. Uh, when the Philistines and the, and the uh, really any army, but when the Philistines and the Israelites would, would fight each other, what they would fight about was our God is better than your God. And it was the fact that there was never a point in time that Israel lost a battle when that box was there, except here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Five and six. What happens is Hophni and Phinehas bring out the, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, their assumption is wrong. The assumption is because I bring this box out, then, then God has to give us the victory. God gave the victory to sanctioned battles. Whether the box was there or not. You recall Moses having his hands lifted up? Where was the Ark of the Covenant there? 
<laughs> you see, the battles that were sanctioned by God were the ones he gave a victory to, not just the ones because the Ark of the Covenant was there. They lost the battle. Matter of fact, they lost the Ark. As Paul Harvey would say, and, and this is the rest of the story, the Philistines took the Ark and took it back to the lordship cities, starting uh, in, uh, in Gath and moving its way down the coast uh, to these five lordship cities of the Philistines. And there was a great parade. How many of you like parades? How many of you understand English? All right, how many of you like parades? All right, good. <laughs> Would you like to be a part of this parade? Because this parade involved rats and hemorrhoids. Anybody? Yeah, me either. In your uh, ESV and perhaps the ASV, you'll read the word tumors that are, that are followed with that. In the King James, you'll read the word emrods. Uh, the, the word is an epic Old Testament scale of hemorrhoids, if you can imagine that. And I cannot and rats to follow along with that. As a matter of fact, when, uh, when the Philistines got so tired of, of that particular parade coming through their town, they sent the ark back to Israel with an apology. And the apology was five golden rats for the five lordship cities and, and five, I'm going to call them clusters because I don't know the correct term, but clusters of hemorrhoids with that. And so they would say, get this ark out of here. And from time to time in the Old Testament, we read uh, here and there about uh, this ark of the covenant. Probably one of the most uh, famous stories, at least in our minds, about that ark of the covenant is a guy by the name of Uzzah. You remember him? What happened to him? He touched that ark, didn't he? And then what happened? Uzzah was no more. He found himself on the other side of eternity after touching that ark. Why? Because God said, don't touch it. Don't even look into it. I made this statement in our Bible class, and I know it's a harsh statement, but I need you to understand the, um, the seriousness of Uzzah touching this ark. If Uzzah had any desire to live, he should have let the ark of the covenant hit the ground. And you say, but preacher, that's the ark of the covenant. I understand that. But he's going against the word of God. So what do you do? So here we have Uzzah looking at this particular ark, and we have these men, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, who, who think the, they have the key to the ark. Uh, we've, we've looked at what it looks like. I want you to notice this before we get too far into Hebrews chapter 9. The box known as the ark of the covenant did not contain God. There's not a box on earth, even the box we're sitting in right now called a building. This building does not contain God. As a matter of fact, that book that you hold in your lap gives us a, a, a snippet view, a, a small view, something that we can digest and understand, but it doesn't contain all of God. And when you begin to think about that, Stop for a moment and go ahead and take a couple of aspirin because beginning to dwell on that will give you a headache to realize how vast God is and how wonderful he is and how much and how, how little, rather, you and I know about him. 
So God, the God of heaven and earth, is everywhere, all the time. Is he here now? Yes. Is he at my house now? Yes. Figure that out. Well, all right, preacher, so what's in that box? Turn over, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going, I promise you, we're going to make our way there. One of the few times the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in the New Testament is found in Hebrews chapter 9, and I think there's a reason. See, when Paul by inspiration, I think Paul by inspiration, writes the book of Hebrews, he writes that to a group of men and women who were coming out of Judaism, out of Old Testament Judaism, and into New Testament Christianity. They live in a very weird period of time. They live in a period of time to where everything that they knew, everything that had been taught to them by their, their mother and father, and everything that they had been doing religiously has now changed. You know, God was happy with this and this type of worship and this type of sacrifice, and now Christ has died and the church has been established, and he no longer accepts that. He wants this. And so they're having a very difficult time changing their mind and, and understanding how God wants those things uh, to, to progress. And I am glad that I don't live during that time period. I'm glad that I have been exposed to truth for what I think is the most of my life and, and that I have an opportunity to be obedient to that and, and it's not going to change. And so as you and I look at Hebrews chapter 9, we realize the writer here is writing to folks who know and understand this Old Testament history, know and understand exactly what he's talking about when he says the Ark of the Covenant. And those things spark very distinctive ideas in their minds. And so in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, he writes, Then verily the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made in the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called sanctuary. Then after that, the second veil of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with gold, wherein was the golden pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the, the tables of the covenant, and, and, uh, the covenant. And over that were the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot speak Particularly now, when he makes mention of those things, they know exactly where he is going. They know exactly what he's talking about. They know what that temple and that tabernacle looked like. They know where the division was, and they know where that curtain was, and they know where the holiest of holies were, and that they couldn't cross over into that. They knew those things. And so when he makes mention of those and says, we can't speak for those right now, we, as Gentiles, 2,000 years removed, would love for him to speak about that a little more in depth. They don't need that right now. Well, let's look what's in this box. First of all, the first thing we see is the power of God uh, for mankind. The first thing, that, as we're looking in this box, is a stick. I said a stick. And you think, it's a stick? Who cares? We can find sticks all day long, right? This stick was probably uh, worn down. It was probably shaved and, and, and nicely uh, uh, used for one man's 
uh, walking around, it would have probably had the oil from his hands, uh, making where he grabbed it very slick and very uh, polished looking. Most would contend that it was a portion of a limb, and I would also contend that it was from an uh, almond tree. It's a dead stick that a guy used to walk around with. Why would you put that in the box? Out of all the things you could put in that box that would be very uh, meaningful to the nation of Israel and to us as the children of God today, why this stick? Well, it's not just a stick. This is the rod that budded. First of all, I need you to know that this is the, the walking stick of Aaron, right? And so it is, while it's in Aaron's hand, just a stick. God begins to ordain who's going to be the, the high priest and from which family that is going to come for the nation of Israel. And he says, whoever stick buds and brings forth almonds, that's who's going to be the high priest. Guess who's did it? Aaron's did it. Numbers chapter 17. Did you know that everyone who was a Levite could be a priest, but not every Levite could be a high priest? Where'd you have to come from? From the family of the man whose stick budded. It's a very specific role to be played out by those uh, in, in the high priest role. What does this stick try to tell me? Why does it tell me about the power of God? Well, there is something that is established when that stick buds for Aaron and for the nation of Israel. Here's what is established. Now Israel has someone to go back to that mercy seat and offer sacrifices to save them. You want to see power of God? What about the power to save? What does that have to do with me? That is a glimpse for you and me of the gospel. Brethren, look. Look in, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it, that gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. You want to see that power? It's found right there in the budding rod of Aaron. The power, the one and only. Let me ask you a question. How many of you use the word the on a regular basis? All right. And the rest of y'all don't speak at all. Because I use the word the like a billion times a day. Not like that. Actually a billion times. All right. Who wants to define it? Come on, it's a word you use every day. You should be able to define it, right? Can you define truck or, or boat? Yeah, we'll define thee. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little more difficult then, doesn't it? To the exclusion of all others. This is the power of God unto salvation to the exclusion of any other power, to the exclusion of any other gospel, to the exclusion of any other God. This is the power that saves man and offers eternal life. Now, do you want it? Because it's seen right there in the rod that buds. Notice this. The provisions of God. Along with this stick, there's a bowl, a golden bowl. 
That's, that's got to be what's, what's uh, of importance in there, right? The golden bowl. Who cares about the bowl? As a matter of fact, the only time we're made mention of the, the golden bowl is when, when it's describing what it contains. Now, how many of you like donuts? Okay. How many of you have never had donuts? Because in the great state of Alabama, there is one kind of donut, and that is the Krispy Kreme donut, and it has to be hot right off of the presses, and then it turns into to liquid pleasure and enjoyment inside your mouth, and uh, you will have a taste of what heaven will be like. Just to have those. I think of Krispy Kreme donuts every time I think of the word manna. In the Hebrew, the word manna means, what is this? They didn't even know what to call it. And it was flaky and doughy, kind of like, uh, uh, at least in my mind, what I think of a buttermilk biscuit. It would, it would flake apart, and uh, it would taste like honey. That's, a, that's excellent. And God just gave that to them every day. How many of you would like to eat uh, uh, all the carbs in a cinnamon roll or donuts every day? I, I definitely would, yes. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, we have one pot, one golden pot of manna. So Brandy and I went to the um, local grocery store real estate establishment yesterday. They will do everything from sell your milk to uh, change your oil. You know the one I'm talking about. Do you? There you who's, somebody said it. Yeah, there you go. And so uh, she told me, I think this is because she wants me to get away from her and leave her alone. Go get me a couple of packs of, of hamburger buns. I said, okay. So I went over there and grabbed them, right? And I'm now two or three uh, places away from her. I had to find her. And I come back and I said, here you go. And I flip one over. And when I do, the second package appears to me and I never looked at it. And the buns were moldy. And I looked at it, I said, well, that ain't going to work. So I took those back, put them on the shelf for somebody else, and I got my own. And, well, I couldn't find anybody with a smock, so I, I, you know, put it where it's supposed to go, and I got my own. Why didn't that golden bowl of manna rot? Hmm, I don't know. That's just something for you to think about. Uh, all of those things that we made mention of about this manna is found in, in Exodus chapter 16. I want you to see in this golden bowl of manna the, the provisions of God. He gave to the nation of Israel what they needed. He, he sustained their life, and when they, were, when they were tired of eating manna, they would ask for meat, and he would send them quail, and they would eat till they just would feel like they wanted to pop, and they would have everything that they needed. Not only did he provide food for them, he provided clothes for them that never wore out, shoes that never wore out, until that generation passed away. Which generation is he talking about? And why, were, why was the nation of Israel walking around the wilderness for 40 years? That goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 13 and 14 when 10 people turned the minds and the hearts of 100,000 or more who said, we can't go into that place and take that land. They're too big, they're too strong, and we're nobody. Mm. They couldn't be, have been more wrong if they tried. They can go in there. As a matter of fact, the two of the people who, who made it through the wilderness, the only two of that generation, were the name, two men by the name of Joshua and Caleb, and their report was, we can go in there and take it, and we ought to do it right now. 
God provided for this nation until they passed from this life into eternity everything that they needed, even when they didn't want to follow him. In this box, you see an old stick and a bowl of old food. Notice this, and you see an old law. According to uh, Hebrews, as, as you and I have passed from the old law into the new law, this law that's inside this box doesn't mean anything anymore, right? I'm not going to look because I'm afraid you're shaking your head. In, in Exodus chapter 20, the law of the Old Testament is given to Moses for the nation of Israel. Many times it's mentioned as the law of Moses because that's who it was given to. This law is old as these men and women look into it from Hebrews chapter 9, but it's not useless. You see, that Old Testament and in those things found within the Old Testament are, are profitable for us. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4, Paul would write that whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning that we can learn something about God and what he expects even from us underneath the New Testament system of faith by looking at the Old Testament. Now, look at the potency of God in this old, outdated, antiquated law. Not in what it says as much as who writes it. God has the authority and the right to tell us what to do. Period. He has the right because in him is all righteousness. In him is all holiness and all glory and all honor. Doesn't he have the right to tell me who's not living right how to live right? Absolutely. And so when we see the potency of God, we see the righteousness and the holiness of God because of who he is. And... I know this is not grammatically correct, but because of who I ain't. Now, who he is and who I am not, he has the right to tell me what to do. That box, that box contains a lot, doesn't it? All of those things in the Old Testament point toward the New Testament. You can see the power of God, the provisions of God. You can see the potency of God. In, in everything that God does within the New Testament in order to save man, notice this. God tells us we must hear what he has to say and believe those things, that we must repent of our sin, confess that Jesus is the Christ, and be baptized. That short, small list is contained in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. That list, you see, is the power of God unto salvation. And there's not another that's going to work. You look at the power of God. He has the opportunity to create a plan that will save mankind from himself. You want to see the provision of God? There he is hanging on the cross. pulling himself up to gutturally groan out the words, Father, forgive them, and it is finished. 
You want to see the potency of God? Because of his power, because of that sacrifice, he has a right to tell me how to live. If you've done those things and you have completed God's plan of salvation, uh, that makes you a child of God's today, and that is excellent. But maybe there are those here who haven't done that, and you think, when can I do that? <clears throat> About two minutes from now. You'll get an opportunity to respond to heaven's invitation. And I hope that is, if you haven't done those things, that you'll take advantage of that. That you today would become a child of God's, and you today would be added to the, to the church of God, to the family of God, to, to those who, who love you and want you to be saved. But it might be the fact, brother or sister, that you've done those things, and yet this last one here, this last one kind of gives us problems. If you don't know, <clears throat> excuse me, that last one's difficult. Because we live around people who have never done those things and who have some sort of influence on our life. We live around people who have said, oh, you don't have to do those things. And sometimes, sometimes we listen to them. Sometimes we take our eyes off of what's important and put them on what is temporal. If that's you, let me invite you to do this. Let me invite you to stand up and dust off the, the mud and dirt from that pig pen and come home. Come home to a God that loves you, to a family that's missing you and praying for you. Do those things right now while we stand and while we sing for your encouragement.